of you who don't know, my name is Tish. Um, I've attended here for a few years and hang around a bit, really. So, um, yeah, and thanks for coming today. Um, and I'm quite keen for this morning. Um, a lot of my talking today will be based on a book by an amazing womanist author that I really admire, Wilda Gaffney. Um, and it, her book is called Womanist Midrash, Introduction to the Women of the Torah and the Throne. So she's a Hebrew Bible scholar and she's great. Um, and I probably just said some unfamiliar words, um, which I will define soon, I promise. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say how excited I am. Um, you know, when you read a really great book and then you just want to talk about it and no one else really cares, but I get to just blab at you for <laughs> like 25 minutes and you've got no choice but to listen. So it's a book nerd's dream come true. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, pop on your nerdy thinking caps and settle in. Um, and this is the first in our Advent series. And has it popped up? Do I click something and it'll pop up? I made a pun. Um, so you're welcome. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'm actually going to, the text that we'll be looking at later is actually from Exodus, which is definitely appropriate for the first week of Advent, but bear with me, I think it links. Um, so as Rod spoke about, Advent shows, um, you know, it's sort of God shining a light on the forgotten people is kind of what we're looking at today, who are the forgotten people. And I think that womanist theology and womanist midrash in particular is a really wonderful lens for shining a light on forgotten people. Um, and it offers us new ways into the text, and it's a way that I think is often overlooked. Black women's stories and experiences are often overlooked and forgotten, and womanist theology and womanist midrash seeks to centre black women and girls' experience as, the norm as normative instead of sidelined and forgotten. Um, and I think midrash in particular is a medium that allows us into these stories that are frequently marginalised, um, and it offers us ways to look at, you know, patriarchal texts in new and exciting ways. So um, before I get into some definitions... Um, I'll quickly say that just sort of at its simplest, um, but I'll expand upon it in a second, woman is, womanism can be defined as black woman's feminism. Um, so huge disclaimer here, I'm white, um, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, and so I cannot pretend to understand what it is like to be a black woman, and I certainly cannot speak on behalf of any and I'm really not trying to. I'm not an expert in womanist thinking or theology, um, but I am grateful to learn from it, and um, I hope that in some ways it informs my practice and work of theology. And I wanted to share it with you today in the hopes that it teaches you a little bit as it has taught me, and that I hope it challenges us. I hope it decenters some of our dominant readings and ideas that we may possibly have, and hopefully it might expire, inspire us to look at the text in new ways and from new lenses. Um, and so I pray our minds are open as, and, um, as we explore womanist theology. Um, but yeah, so um, today mostly I am just drawing from womanist theologians and scholars because it's kind of inappropriate for me to try to do my own work in this area. Um, so instead sort of think of me here as just a signpost pointing you to some of my faves rather than, um, I guess, doing anything to this. Are you following so far? Is the microphone all right? 
No one's bored with the theory yet. I cut a lot out this morning, so you're really welcome. <laughs> I think I've spent too long with my head in theology book that I was like, this is fun. And then I was like, maybe not for everyone. Um, yeah, so first some terminology and a little bit of theory, but then I promise we'll get into an exciting Exodus womanist midrash. So just hold your horses and wait until then. Um, but text and theory is fun too. So um, we'll click on and hopefully... Yeah, so I'll start with the term midrash. Um, it's not like when you've got a rash and you're in the middle of it or anything like that. Um, as w- That's what I thought when I first heard the word. So... But basically, it's sort of the main, it's an ancient rabbinical term, and it's the main sort of term for exegesis, which is just the critical interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. So, uh, and it kind of means, it comes from the verb drash, which means to seek. Um, And later, it sort of eventually became to to exegete. But basically, it's an interrogation of a text. it's traditionally used in mystical, imaginative, revelatory and religious ways. Um, and Gaffney, Wilde Gaffney, who we, whose work we're going to be exploring today, she's heavily inspired by rabbinic exegesis or midrash. Uh, and she draws a lot from this tradition. So basically midrash, what have I got up here? Yeah, so midrash interprets not only the text for the reader, but also the text behind and beyond the text and the text between the lines of the text. In rabbinic thinking, each letter and the spaces between the letters are available for interpretive work. Midrash is really comprehensive and occasionally contradictory, raising as many questions as it answers. Um, So it's just the idea that there are stories within the text that are not explicit in the text, basically. So I think a lot of us will have seen it in sermons before and maybe just by another name. It's when somebody goes... I imagine Mary would have felt like this and done this or Jesus as a baby probably did this or, you know, it's not explicitly in the text but they're drawing from the text. Um, And so moving on to womanism, and then we'll put the two together. Um, So like I said, Gaffney defines womanism at its most simple as black woman's feminism. Um, And there's Alice Walker who sort of was the person generally attributed with coining it, that that womanist is to feminist as lavender is to purple. So they're not in opposition, um, but rather I'd say they're sort of in dialogue with one another. Um, So Gaffney defines womanism, yeah, again, that's most simple. However, she would also distinguish it from the dominant culture feminism. Um, So she would say that too frequently the dominant culture feminism has been distorted by racism and classism, And so for Gaffney, womanism draws on the black liberations movement, emancipatory ethic and reverence for black physical and cultural aesthetics and includes feminism's radical egalitarianism and that it has sort of the transformational trajectories of both movements. So um, a lot of people sort of consider it as coming from, we looked at liberation theology in recent weeks, um, coming from black liberation theology and going, hey, I really love this liberative trajectory especially of black people but what about my womanness and then similarly in feminist thinking and theology a lot of black women are going this is really great I love that it's considering my womanness but what about my blackness and so womanist theology kind of combines both and has a specific focus on both um is everyone still following I know it's a bit theory heavy but we're getting there and it's fun 
I'll just keep telling you that as though it'll like make you feel it. Um, um, yeah. And I included a quote there, which is from Alice Walker, but maybe I'll just let you read that if you like. Um, but it's kind of her talking about how she defines it. So I think really all I'll say there to sort of expand that is I think like Christians would all have a different definition of what it means to be a Christian, so too do womanists and feminists have a different definition of what it means to be a feminist. And today is a 101, so I'd encourage you to explore it further if you're interested and want sort of more nuance than I can give in a couple of minutes. Um, yeah. And so in general, womanist theology... Nyasha Jr., she writes a great introductory text to womanist biblical interpretation. It's literally called that, an introduction to womanist biblical interpretation. Uh, and this is kind of roughly how she sort of defines, I guess, a womanist sort of theology or, a or approach to the biblical text. And she says that scholars may use black feminist and womanist approaches in many different ways, but in general, these approaches may share some basic characteristics First, they critique what is perceived as white feminism's focus on gender to the exclusion of other factors, such as race and class, and its preoccupation with the particular concerns of white women. Second, they address the simultaneity of multiple and overlapping oppressions, such as racism, classism, and sexism. Third, they foreground the experiences of African-American women. Um, and then we'll... Oh, Go on. And now we get to womanist midrash. So we're nearly there. We're nearly through the theory. Um, so I think I've got it. Yeah, I just think I've got it in the right order. So basically, womanist midrash is just a way of doing midrash with a particularly womanist lens. And Gaffney sort of describes it here that it's the set of interpretive practices. But basically, I'll just sort of take out of that. It's um, it attends to marginalise characters in biblical narratives, especially women and girls, intentionally including and centering on non-Israelite peoples and enslaved persons. It listens to and for their voices in and through the Hebrew Bible while acknowledging that often the text does not speak or even intend to speak to or for them, let alone hear them. Womanist Midrash offers names for anonymized characters and crafts slash listens for slash gives voice to those characters. Um, and for Gaffney, it's an outgrowth of her experience from pulpit and pew and the sanctified imagination in black preaching. Um, yeah. Are we all still following? Everyone's good? No sort of questions or stuck on anything? And then we'll get to the fun bit. So for Gaffney, there's the womanist um, shaping principles of her work. The first is that as often the sort of, in a lot of theology, there's sort of the white male norm, um, whereas in her she tries the legitimacy of black women's biblical interpretation as normative and authoritative. It's not a sort of secondary reading. It can also be a normative and authoritative reading. Um, womanist theology and the shaping principles of her work is that the involvement of the whole community, each member has value. They also emphasise the value of children and of all being involved in the conversation. Um, 
and the idea of talking back to the text, in dialogue with the text, wrestling with the text. And none of these are like specifically exclusive to womanism, but for Gaffney, these are her womanist shaping um, principles. And also clearly showing the work of exegesis from translation to interpretation. So it's not sort of saying the Bible clearly says, insert here, it's saying through this interpretation, I think it says this. Um, and so we'll go on. Um, so as Rod said, we're sort of talking about sort of the forgotten people and the Hebrew Bible, which is what Wilder Gaffney focuses on, the Torah, has a lot of forgotten women in it. Many of them are named. Um, and many of them just not often spoken about. Um, often we hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, but we sort of less often hear about the God of Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Bilhar, and Zilpah, Batshua, Tamar, Asenath, and so many others. And a lot of them are probably unfamiliar names for a lot of us. Um, you know, we might sort of recognise Rachel and Leah, but the other pe- but Bilhar and Zilpah maybe not so much. Um, yeah, so I encourage you to explore their stories in other weeks, but we're going to skip over it for today. I just sort of wanted to highlight, I guess, that idea. Um, okay. So the forgotten women. So like I said today, we're focusing in Exodus. Um, so the Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is Shemoth, and it means names. Uh, and it comes from the opening line of, sorry, the opening words of the first verse. Um, and interestingly enough, for a book entitled Names, it misses a lot of names. Um, the text does not actually provide the names of all of Israel's sons. It actually names only the 12 that we're familiar with, the 12 who were sort of later accounted as the patriarchs within the tradition. Um, but Genesis 46 actually says numbers Israel's children at 33 and 66 respectively in two different parts. So it contradicts itself a little bit there. Um, so however, whichever number you pick, it's more than 12. Um, I'm generally an art student, not a math student, but even that one works for me. Um, and he had an unknown number of daughters and only one of them is named Dina. Um, so there was probably at least a dozen or more, we don't know how many daughters among that mix. Uh, and, you know, yeah, the names are not there. Uh, and the number of female characters in Exodus drops almost tenfold when compared to those in Genesis. Um, in Exodus, the st- stories of sort of individual women, let alone women whose names are preserved and are spoken, are quite few and far between. Um, and many are hidden in sort of certain expressions. One of the expressions that are often hidden is, I'm probably going to be pronouncing the Hebrew wrong, so I apologise. Is Benny is Yisrael. Um, yeah, I got it up there. Great. Good job, Ange. Um, and that means sons of Israel, or it can also include children of Israel. Um, yeah, so they're hidden, but they're also there. And so a lot of Gaffney's book is sort of bringing out the stories of these women, or possibly even sort of imagining the stories of these women and giving them names, even sometimes. Um, so the two women we're looking at today and their sort of story in a midrash about them, they do have names within the text, some of the lucky ones. Um, 
And yeah, I'll just read the text that they're in in Exodus. So it's when I'll just put a bit of background off the top of my head. Um, so they're in Egypt um, and they're slaves under Pharaoh. And yeah, so this is before they've done the mass exodus and escaped into the wilderness. Um, and so Exodus 1.15. Now the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew birthing women, whom the name of one was Shiprah, and the name of the second, Puah. He said, when you birth the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you will put him to death. And if a daughter, she shall live. For the birthing women feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So it's a short text, but a really interesting one. There's a lot in there. Um, so Gaffney translates, often they're translated as midwives, but Gaffney chooses Hebrew birthing women as sort of quite a literal translation. Um, and so from what we know, it appears that they're Hebrew women themselves. Their names are Semitic, so it seems likely that they're not sort of from the Egyptian women or that community, but that they're actually serving the Hebrew women, um, but they're actually from within that community. Um, Shipra's name means to be beautiful or to be pleasing. There's a, not exactly a sort of much clarity around what Pua's name means. Um, but we know that it's also a Semitic name. Uh, and likely given sort of their presentation within the text, um, we can read that they're sort of probably the mothers or the heads of the Israelite midwifery guild or whatever is going on there. Um, because it seems highly unlikely that just two women are responsible for attending all and every single one of the births of the Hebrew people, um, the people who in Exodus 1-7 are described as filling the land. Um, either that or they're just like phenomenal and really quick. Um, and in like quite a really odd text, these two women are brought before Pharaoh, um, the unnamed Pharaoh, which is also interesting in itself. And he commands them to kill every male baby they deliver on the birthing stools. Um, and, I mean, one can only imagine what that encounter was like. Um, and we're going to see how Wilder Gaffney kind of imagines a bit of the aftermath of that encounter and that encounter as well. But she says that using her sanctified imagination, she sees them both maintaining their calm, showing proper respect in every way as though they were seasoned diplomats and courtiers. And then she creates a midrash for after the meeting with the pharaoh. But before we do that, I thought we'd let a snowball happen. Whoops. So, um, those of you who aren't here often, often we just like pass the mic around and people can sort of I pop some questions up on the screen and I'll read them out. And feel free to, yeah, say whatever pops into your head. And usually after a while it snowballs and then we have to wrestle the mic. Yeah, so what struck you about the story that we just read? Um, have you heard about these women before? Does anything about it make you uncomfortable? What do you hope that Gaffney's Midrash will address? Do you think it will answer any questions? Um, what questions are raised for you from this text? And also, what does God look like in this text?
Um, I what strikes me about this story is, um, I suppose, the tenaciousness, tenaciousness and rebelliousness of this, these two women to be told by like the leader of their world <laughs> um, to to kill the sons, but them to go like no, nah. and to, to they would understand. Um, I'm sure how serious that was to not do what he was saying, but to do it anyway. Um, I've never heard of these two women, but they sound remarkable. Um, I would like to know in Gaffney's Midrash whether they get killed after because of their disobedience, or do they live? Yeah, I just think these women are gutsy. Like, they are really brave. And, like, as midwives or birthing women, their, their focus is life. And their core value would be life. And for them to actually do the opposite would be just, I, I assume, would just be impossible. So... Yeah. Um, just the irony of Pharaoh commanding the sons to be killed because um, women are a threat, and yet it's women who undermine his power. There's no children here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, it just strikes me how, how often when we interpret the Bible, our own experience or other things that we've read um, come into that. I was, um, this story reminds me of a Holocaust memoir that I read, a woman that was a midwife in Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that um, if a woman gave birth, the Nazis would straight away kill both of them. And so the, the practice of the midwives in the concentration camp was to try to hide all pregnancies and when the baby was born, they would immediately kill the baby so that the mother would live um, and rather than both of them dying. And it just, you know, immediately hearing this story, it reminded me of that one and the fact that it is, as Esther said, this is, that is also an act in the service of life, like trying to preserve one life out of two, but what a... Um, horrific way to serve life. So I'll read the Midrash instead of Liz. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, really beautiful one, which is why I chose it. Shipra and Pua call all the birthing women to assemble, telling their overseers that they are passing on Pharaoh's instructions. One Egyptian lingers longer than the others. Pua shoes him out with the ancient womanist refrain, this is women's business. He leaves. Hundreds of women come to the place of Shipra's tent. Many bring daughters, granddaughters, and nieces whom they are apprenticing in the profession. Some are pregnant, others are nursing. 
It takes more than a day for everyone to gather, eat and rest from their journeys. And there is talk, shop talk, women's words, shared experiences and new techniques, herbs to stop bleeding, herbs to bring on labour, teas to increase milk production, ways to limit pregnancies. And finally, Jupra speaks. She tells them Pharaoh's words and the women gasp. Some mutter, some shout. Some of the children are frightened. Shipra and Pua shush them and call for a calm. And Shipra begins to prophesy. God has brought our people a mighty long way. And I don't believe God has brought us this far to leave us. Do not fear this Pharaoh or his warriors not his war horses nor his chariots. God will blow them away like smoke in the wind. In our days, before our eyes, God will break the back of Egypt and wash away its might. God will raise up one of our sons to lead us and all our children out of this house of slavery. Our hands and our wombs do God's work. We will deliver the deliverer. We will keep him safe until the day that God calls him to lead us to freedom. We shall receive our freedom dancing to woman's song if we trust the mighty power of Shaddai who drew us from a holy womb whose spirit covers the earth. And Shipra takes her seat and then Pua speaks. Trust in God whose name is holy. This is what we shall do. Deliver the babies, hide as many of the boys as you can. Raise others as girls. Do not worry about the Egyptians. They will not come house to house to check on women. They cannot imagine that we would defy the Pharaoh whom they revere as a living God. The women leave the convocation of birthing women. Days, weeks, then months go by. Pharaoh is too busy to think about the Hebrew birthing women. Someone mentions that the Hebrew people are still growing in spite of the Pharaoh's commandment and he summons them back. To explain themselves. And that's the end of the Midrash, but I'll just add a few more observations about the text that she gives us. So in the text, there's only a single verse that passes between the Pharaoh's genocidal command and his realisation that the birthing women have failed to curb the population of Israel. Um, Gaffney offers it up as another fertile space for Midrash, with sort of questions like, how long did it take Pharaoh to figure this out? Um, was it a month? Was it a year? How did he find out? Was he keeping track? Was there a special bureaucrat in charge of the Hebrew women or Hebrew people? Or the, um, and perhaps the reader is astounded that the women are not killed. They're not even thrown in a dungeon. Um, but the narrative has told us that the women are God-fearing women, and Gaffney says that maybe God and or their fear of God protects them and that maybe the Pharaoh also just doesn't like getting his own hands dirty. He usually gets someone else to do it. Or maybe he didn't think the women were worth his time. Um, and also, so instead he calls the women back and here Shipra and Pua lie and they use the Pharaoh's cultural bias against him and it's brilliant, it's very clever. In Exodus 1.19 they say when he asks them why why are there so many babies? Like, you're not doing a great job. They say the Hebrew women are brutish, animalistic. They use the word cheoth, the Hebrew, not refined, like Egyptian women. 
their babies just plop out of them. <laughs> so it's quite, like, one, a great lie. Like, he, she, they use his, sort of his own cultural bias, his own ideas about the Hebrew women against him to protect the Hebrew women. Um, and the Pharaoh seems to be at a loss for words. In fact, he never speaks to them again, and they go fine. Um, so the birthing women, they leave the royal audience unscathed in spite of their disobedience. And more than that, they leave with divine favour. Um, at some point, we're told in Exodus one twenty one, these birthing women, they become matriarchs, the heads of their own households. Um, there's no mention of the men in their lives. Even if they are married, they, not the husbands or other men, will be the heads of their households. And they're also given the promise of a house, sort of more of a dynasty. It's the same one that God gives to David in Samuel, in 2 Samuel. Um, however, Shiprampua's resistance appears to be somewhat in vain as the Pharaoh orders the death of all the Hebrew baby boys. And this time he doesn't trust women to do his dirty work and commands his own people to become the genocidal agents. But Gaffney says, the liberation of the Israelite people in Egypt begins with Shipra and Pua. They are the mothers of a revolution waged by women. They likely enlisted untold numbers of birthing women and expectant mothers in their resistance movement. It is not clear whether they deliver Moshe, Moses, Aharon, Aaron, and or Miriam. In any case, their act of resistance sets the stage for those to follow. Shipra and Pua become the first deliverers in the book of deliverance. Um, so another snowball, and then we've we've made it. We've survived the theory and all of the midrash. So the sort of questions did did that actually answer any questions anyone had, or has it provoked new questions? Did it cause you to look at the text a little bit differently? Um, how does this text portray God differently, if at all? Um, and do you all want to read the book now? So this, I just thought about the way you began with um, God shining a light on forgotten people and the way this, the Midrash... Um, causes us to stop and actually see these characters that we would often just skip over so quickly. Yeah. I have a context question. Is this the is this like the event that prefaces um yeah. It is, yeah. Right. We, I think when we learn about the story of the Exodus, we don't really think about the people that gave birth, like the women who were there giving birth to children in the context that led into that and the oppression and how it affected them specifically. Or if they're mentioned, they're mentioned in that they made it possible for Moses without sort of them being scared. Also, Moses' story was only possible because of his mother and his sister.
Um, I think it's just really beautiful to like flesh out stories like this where you get like one or two lines in the Bible but there is so much, so, so much behind it and and actually kind of labelling it as a revolution and, and kind of drawing you into that story like it's, yeah, really, really important and I want to read the book. complete shot in the dark, but I'm wondering if the formation of the law, not the whole Torah, but the commandments and Levitical priesthood and that sort of thing happened in light of the slavery and the way that people were treated in when they were um, in slavery and what scholarship says about that. It's very interesting. I don't know a lot about that, but Commenting on the law from a feminist and womanist perspective, uh, it actually only addresses Hebrew men. So that's a fun fact about the Ten Commandments. Uh, women are only mentioned in it kind of more as property. So <laughs> sorry to burst that bomb. But yeah, certainly um, Walter Brueggemann, the German, as uh, German, he's got a German name, but he's an American um, scholar, talks a lot about the fact that the whole of the Torah is a reaction to that experience in Egypt. Um, Dr. Cheryl Anderson has a great book called Ancient Laws and Contemporary Controversies, which does really good stuff on the Ten Commandments and other Torah. Uh, I can't help thinking about uh, these women, just just how... um, how often in life do women, powerful women, that really change history, imagine if they'd gone ahead and killed all the males, um, have flown under the radar? Like, is that a strategy of God's or something? Because I, I see it, I, you know, I think of Zimbabwe and just women that have um, decided to just peacefully um, um, protest, I suppose, and no one seems to know anything about it. Like it's never on the me on media, or you know, and yet they have the power to to just change the course of a nation just simply by not following. You know, yeah, I don't know. I just think. Um, I, I think it's almost a strategy for women to fly under the radar and they get a lot more done. <laughs> yeah, and some people have written um, like interesting commentaries about this is an interesting um, example of uh, nonviolent protest, which is, yeah, another aspect of the story that we don't have time really to dig into today. The only other thing that occurs to me is how much, um, in ways that we don't realise, our reading of the Bible is shaped by the metaphors and the way our imagination has been shaped in other ways. And just that word deliverance and delivery and the fact that babies are delivered and that if we bring 
yeah, if you bring, if you have a female sense of God, God is El Shaddai, you know, the many-breasted one giving birth to us, coming out of God's womb, then suddenly the Exodus is, is a birthing story of Israel being birthed out of Egypt into another land and God is the mother giving birth rather than um, a sense of it being dominated by kind of male images of a warrior coming and, you know, hacking the Egyptians to pieces so that his people can, his people can escape. So, um, yeah, I think it just really is. That really struck me, the, the notion of deliver. I'd never made that connection between a baby being delivered and Israel being delivered before. And, yeah, to my shame. I think that one of the things that I like about these two women is about how humbly they just went about doing the work that God had asked them to do. Um, I think potentially there's some male characters in the Bible um, that have much more of a fanfare, have much more of a following, create an army against another army. Um, but I really admire, I really admire the way that they just quietly, diligently went about doing an extremely important work that God had asked them to do um, and then just kind of got on with it. I think one of my favourite parts of this story as well is that they lie. I don't know why. I just find it a really interesting um, that it's kind of like, you know, a God-sanctioned lie, um, at least as it appears in the text, it seems from my interpretation. Um, so that's it. I'll end it there. Um, but we will... Oh, there's some book recommendations in case anyone wanted any. Um, and I'd just add um, Ancient Laws and Contemporary Controversies by um, Dr Cheryl Anderson. She's great. Mm-hmm.